Linear algebra underlies much of what goes on in machine learning. And as a subject in its own right, it has a lot of beauty. There is probably no one who has done more to evangelize the subject than Professor Gil Strang, who spent 66 years, 66, at MIT, and just recently gave his final linear algebra lecture. I had the honor to sit down with him and talk through his career, his reflection on six decades of teaching, some of the intersections between linear algebra and deep learning, and his hopes for what's to come. It was truly incredible to speak with someone who has taught so much to me and to many others. Professor Strang is an incredibly thoughtful and humble human being, and I hope this episode does some justice to his thinking. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you enjoy these episodes, you can follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast episode. You can also follow us on Substack to get regular notifications whenever we release a new article, newsletter, or podcast episode. You can also find our online magazine at thegradient.pub, where we regularly publish essays by the sorts of people I interview on the podcast. And finally, if you enjoy the episode, it would mean a great deal to us all if you'd consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast player you're using to listen to this episode. It helps more listeners like you find what we're doing and helps us bring in more interesting guests for you to listen to. But now, without further ado, Gil Strang. Professor Strang, I and I'm sure many of our listeners know you as one of the most renowned educators in in the world at this stage. You have been an incredible champion for linear algebra education, for mathematics education more broadly. And you've really done a service, I think, to a lot, both within the machine learning field, who do have to know at least a little bit about linear algebra, and outside it. And I suppose it's it's kind of amazing to be speaking to you just off of your last lecture at MIT, really ending an era. But as I do with these episodes, I'd love to go back to where it all began for you. So I, I suppose I'd love to hear a little bit about your early academic interests and your your mathematical education and how that kind of evolved for you into wanting to focus on teaching linear algebra. Okay, I'm glad to say what I remember, and I'm happy that you saw that final lecture, uh, which was uh, turned out to be sort of unexpectedly uh, well well known or well broadcast. Uh, yeah, that was an adventure. Um, well, the whole, my whole life has been an adventure. If I go back to high school, um, so that was in St. Louis, and I um, just, it was a boarding school. So when I arrived in ninth grade, I went to the ninth grade math teacher and said, well, I've had ninth grade math already. Uh, do you want me to take it again? So anyway, I took an exam for that and other exams. So suddenly I had, was really near the end of high school math uh, of, of what was offered at that time. It's interesting to look back. So nobody in, in, in this good school taught calculus, whereas now every good high school has a class, an advanced class that reaches calculus. And what I hope is they'll also reach some linear algebra that, that, because uh, 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 I think really linear algebra has become just as central as calculus and more useful for a lot of people. And that probably applies to deep learning. Yeah. So anyway, that was my high school. And then from there, I, applied, I went to MIT and and 
that was so I was a math major, one of a small number of math majors at that time. Uh, now there are about 400. Uh, but that was fine. Uh, I just did ordinary stuff in college and then got a scholarship to Oxford uh, in England. So that was yeah, actually probably that was it was a textbook I read there by a by a man, an author named Mursky, who, which just clicked with me about linear algebra. So, uh, you know, it, sometimes a book clicks some, or a subject clicks, sometimes not. Uh, and then uh, and then I was interested in sort of applied things, the, no, using uh, math. So I wrote to somebody about where should I go for grad school, maybe on the West Coast. Uh, and they suggested UCLA, and that turned out to be a good choice uh, for graduate school. And about all this time, I was still thinking about being going into industry, being a mathematician for who knows, Bell Labs maybe at that time. Uh, but MIT offered me a, a teaching a job as an instructor for two years, and I that was a chance to move back to Boston, which I liked. And uh, so that started the uh, my my time at MIT, my 60 whatever years at MIT. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and then, uh, of course, writing papers and, and teaching over these years, uh, lots of different applications of of uh, of linear algebra came up, solving differential equations uh, by finite differences, and then the finite element method. That was a big activity. So that was really that was that led to my first effort to write a textbook, to write a book. About, uh, so the first book was about an analysis of the finite element method. So that was a big change in my life to discover. Uh, that I like teaching, and also I liked writing textbooks, trying to make them clear and interesting. So uh, at the same time, the linear algebra course, uh, shall I carry on? This is a... Please, uh, please go ahead. I never thought about the, all these things, but it mm -hmm. uh, all comes back now. Of course. Uh, yeah. Um, so... Um, so it just happened when I was, so I was, two, two things sort of happened at the same time. I was put in charge of the, of the linear algebra course. It was a basic course, but it was very pure, uh, all proofs as, as, as things were at that time, 1970s. Uh, and uh, I thought, and, and of course, the, and the linear algebra class was only taken by handful of math majors. The big users of linear algebra are totally left out. So that was obvious they couldn't continue. And uh, so at MIT, I created a more of uh, an applied version of linear algebra with, uh, you know, within uh, app thinking of how you use linear algebra, why is it so helpful? And uh, then a lot of engineering students and other students came to that, ch chose that course. So that, and then eventually writing a textbook. Um, and, and uh, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was fun. And so teaching and writing and, and, and writing research papers about Linear algebra. That was that was the center of my years at MIT, uh, and then uh, finite elements was one application, which is not so far from from uh, deep learning. Uh, so mm -hmm. one of my interests in deep learning is 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 comparing it with a finite element method, because both methods create piecewise function uh, functions that are that have a different form maybe on maybe we have a lot of try we we divide space 
into a bunch of triangles and and the uh, functions that we're interested in are linear within each piece within each triangle and they the triangles sort of fit together that's for me that's still a highly interesting question why is it how how to account for the great success of of deep learning functions what is it about those functions which are different from the finite element engineering choice of functions uh, that uh, that make deep deep learning succeed so that would be for, for me that's the underlying math question how is, uh, is is what kind of a learning function is created from the training data and why does it succeed so fantastically well I'd love to dive into that thought in more detail in a little bit, but sure. first, maybe I do want to get a bit into your your mindset really early on during the time you're describing when you were first beginning to teach at MIT and when you were writing your textbook on the finite element method. The finite element method, of course, um, something that would be pretty important for engineers. And so if that was a focus for you, I think that from my perspective, I can imagine you kind of saw, wait, there are these applied linear algebra methods that are really useful for engineers, but they just aren't being taught about them. When you were first sort of thinking about all of this, thinking about how do I take this very theoretical course for mathematics majors and make it more interesting for engineers? Right. What was it that convinced you of that importance? Was it things like the finite element method where you saw these sort of clear applications that engineers could take away? What kind of convinced you that that was something that needed to be done at the time? Well, that's, that was certainly part of it. And, and uh, another area for, for a lot of uh, good engineering is signal processing. So, if, so when I met saw paper read began to read papers about signal processing those were also applied linear algebra in, in my thinking uh and 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 some beautiful theorems about uh, so that was another direction of engineering using linear algebra and then not really based on calculus so i wasn't uh, um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so the different uh, uh, steps in in uh, signal processing is just is is a was a major example for me to say, hey, this is a really useful uh, and and not trivial, not so simple uh, application of linear algebra. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I tended to 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 see what so uh, signal processing was one very large group of engineers. Finite elements was more civil engineering, mechanical engineering, structural engineering. They they they're using piecewise functions uh, in a different way, uh, but uh, uh, and and then uh, along came. Uh, the, the the deep learning ideas, and they succeeded incredibly well to create a, a, a learning function. And, and maybe I still don't feel I fully understand why I'm thinking of when Relu is the uh, is the is the uh, uh, nonlinear function that goes into it. Uh, uh, it's an entirely new idea. The, the whole, to me, it's it's a problem of interpolating data. You have a you have a bunch of training data, or in in finite element case, the engineer has a shape of his building and uh, or or structure. Uh, but so we have training data, and out of that training data, we create a a, a function. A learning function that that uh, that is gives the right feedback for the training data, and then apply it to new data, and uh, the 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 success of deep learning is that that step works so well. Uh, 
there, now I'm jumping forward from uh, those early years. Uh, yeah, but the, the early years were pretty exciting too, before I ever heard of deep learning. Uh, was just the, another thing that luckily appeared was uh, MIT decided to create open courseware. Uh, so, so that, uh, and, and at the same time, I had I was thinking of recording my linear algebra class. What my motive was uh, to encourage other uh, math professors to do it. Uh, there was a, a friend of mine, Giancarlo Rota, was a super lecturer in differential equations, and then he created the field of combinatorics uh, almost uh, single-handedly. Uh, so I always hoped he would give his lectures would would be recorded. Uh, in the end, they weren't, and uh, which I regret, but the recording of my class uh, came at the same time that that uh, the president of MIT said okay to open courseware so that that was a, another very lucky uh, coincidence yes yes absolutely it's it's interesting so as you've pointed out and as many of our listeners know you were one of the first professors to put your your lectures up on open courseware and and really advocated for that and of course by now i think you're you're well aware of the many many students including me that you've impacted with that work how are you when you when you first started putting out courses on open courseware i guess there is of course this imagination that yes let's sort of make it possible for anybody around the world to see what an education at MIT looks like and kind of get the best from our mathematics curriculum. And so I imagine that was a little bit of the mindset there, but I, I am curious just what your thinking was around, if you had any, around how do we sort of democratize education, make lectures that are accessible, that are that one can learn from, not just for the students in the classroom, but those watching via lectures as well online. Yes, that, that's exactly right. Well, uh, so the so I really made the the lectures were actually the the class in progress. So uh, for me, there wasn't a dis big distinction between the class I was physically teaching in front of me and and whoever uh, was watching on video uh, at a later time. Uh, the idea was to make it clear, um, make the steps in, in, in mathematics clear and, and connected. And uh, uh, somehow it turned out well, uh, always because the subject itself is so important. Uh, I don't think I am anything special. It's just when you have a subject that people are going to use and need and and it's not well realized then i think it's almost a responsibility to to uh help people to know what what a valuable subject it is it, it's just uh, it was it was just an impossible situation previously when only a handful of math majors were were taking linear algebra uh that, that simply couldn't happen. And then, of course, um, along came uh, MATLAB and, and uh, other uh, computer languages that made, made it possible to do linear algebra, uh, uh, made it, you know, on a totally different scale uh, by uh, using the, using these, uh, the languages that were created. So that was another step, which wasn't my step, but it, it, it was super important to, to have languages. And now we have, in addition to MATLAB, uh, well, all the, uh, the other systems that your listeners know. I'd, I'd love to discuss a little bit more in detail about 
the sort of applied pedagogical approach that you take to linear algebra and what that entails. Maybe to give a little bit of kind of personal experience, my introductions to linear algebra were during the Harvey Mudcore curriculum. We had these two half semester courses. The first one was a half semester rust seven week intro to linear algebra. The second was a mixture of linear algebra and differential equations. I remember getting to my third linear algebra class, um, maybe third half class, which was an intermediate course. It was taught using Axler's linear algebra done right. I think personally, I found that I'd lost a fair amount of intuition. And I think that that was for me. Our professor was kind of aware of this. And I think that he did a good job closing the gap. But there was always this kind of difference between the way in which I found things maybe presented in Axler and then kind of, I believe our, our professor included a quotation to this effect on our first midterm that went something like, the theory and all is, is really great, but at some point you just have to pick up your pen, put your head down and, and start multiplying matrices. I see. Right. Yeah. And that was always, I think, taking that, that theory to practice was something that took a while to develop the intuition around. And so I suppose I'm curious for you, a lot of your classes that you know I've seen, that many others have seen, you do this wonderful job where you are really thinking through the problem out on the board as a student would. And I think you've articulated your approach in that way before. I am curious how you think about a little bit closing that gap for students in terms of this is a topic that can be approached very theoretically, but at some point you do just have to pick up the pen and start multiplying things as it were. Well, interesting you say start multiplying things. So actually, um, this may serve as an example. Um, in, the, in the very first uh, hour of teaching linear algebra, uh, especially as, as I would do it now, uh, the one thing that's always there is how do you multiply a matrix by a vector? How do you understand A times X, matrix A times vector X? Uh, so now that linear algebra is, is seen pretty early, almost all students see AX, uh, see the computation of A times X as a bunch of dot products dot product of each row of A with the vector, the column vector X. Uh, but that's not insightful. Uh, there, a much more insightful understanding of a matrix times a vector is that it's um, a, the result is a combination of the columns of A. So I'm from day one, I'm talking about combinations of the columns of A, of the matrix. In other words, not, so you would compute it one dot product at a time, one component at a time. But to see it, to understand it, you think of, you best to think of A times X as a, think of A as having column vectors, and A times X produces a combination of those linear combination. That's what you can do with vectors. Yes. You can linear combinations. And that's the fundamental uh, concept behind A times X. And then A times B, a matrix times a matrix, that follows then column by column uh, from A times a, a vector. So A times each column of B is a column of A times of AB. So for, I hope my audience will forgive my talking about this such a basic thing, but uh, that is invariably in the first lecture about of linear algebra to see vectors uh, and not just their components. Really, that's linear algebra is thinking of, of vectors and, vector, and spaces of vectors. And uh, that's, it's that... that gives you the big picture uh, to build on. Yes, I, I do remember going back to that picture from your classes as I was navigating right. those things myself. And I think that it's interesting, I guess, just kind of returning to that basic concept and 
really, I guess, forming that that basic intuition that kind of underlies everything else. Yeah, let me carry it to the next step because that is vector spaces. So, so if I multiply a matrix A by a vector, I get a combination of the columns. Now, now the next step is to think of of doing that for all X's. A, all matrices, I mean, no, we have a fixed matrix A and we multiply by all vectors X. So that gives us a whole lot of different outputs. All of them are combinations of the columns of A, that, that fundamental idea. So we're getting all combinations of the columns and uh, that produces the column space. So in comes a word space, vector space, which is a bunch of vectors. And geometrically, we think of a plane. Combinations of two vectors would give a, uh, give a plane. That's now more and more uh, uh, my goal in the first pages is to see, for, to take that next step, critical step, to see um, that uh, a, a matrix, a fixed matrix A times all possible vectors X gives all possible combinations of those columns of A. And that's a plane or a 3D, three-dimensional vector space or, a, or a, an n-dimensional vector space uh, when the matrix is n by n. Uh, or not necessarily n-dimensional. If there's then then we get into the question: Are some columns dependent on other columns? So you're you're seeing what's important about independent ind the idea of linear independence. So these these are all the the crucial first steps in understanding linear algebra, uh, and. Uh, so that's what I push the class to understand from the start. Yeah, and I suppose from this point, you get into a lot of concepts that do become visually intuitive over time, like span and all these things. And they do come right. up in very important ways when we start thinking about data when you are doing uh, principal component analysis, for example, right. that I think a lot of people are familiar with in classical ML and having to understand the notion of orthogonality and when you start getting into eigenvalues and all of these things. Right, that's right. So you've, you've used the key words in all the next steps, orthogonality. It turns out for high-quality numerical applications, uh, an orthogonal basis is is a big step forward over just any bunch of vectors that that whose combinations give the space. Any any bunch of vectors that span the space, when that when those vectors are orthogonal, you get high accuracy. You get nice understanding of the of, of the multiplication. So. Orthogonality eventually wins, so um, that's uh, comes for eigenvalues of a symmetric matrix, and then now what everybody has to learn has to learn is the singular is about singular values because those are, that those apply for all matrices, not just square symmetric matrices, but all matrices, in particular matrices of data. And those matrices are not square. There's no reason why they should be. Uh, but so they don't have eigenvectors, but they've got singular vectors. And those those are the they've got two sets of singular vectors that input singular vectors, and then you multiply by a, and you get an output singular vector. And uh, yeah, those that's. So instead of AX equal lambda X, that's the eigenvalue, eigenvector picture. A times X is a multiple of X. The new important one is A times V equals sigma times U. So uh, 
So we, we have two sets of vectors, of course, because the matrix is not even square. It's rectangular. We have the inputs and the outputs are different things. So, uh, uh, but the great singular value decomposition says we can find orthogonal vectors as inputs where the outputs also turn out to be orthogonal. That, that's the magic of, of the singular value decomposition. We have orthogonal vectors so brilliantly chosen that when you multiply by A, you get orthogonal output vectors. So that's the, so that's a big change in, in teaching linear algebra, which has not arrived fully, partly because if to add singular values and, and singular vectors to the course, the course already took a semester. And so something has to give if you're going to add in singular values and then applications like PCA, super important, and, and, and all sorts of other uh, data analysis. Uh, so data analysis and, and linear algebra are coming together, but the courses have to, have to go faster at the beginning if they're going to get to singular values in a semester. And uh, that's the, the effort of my textbooks now is to, is to move more, more quickly into the ideas, the first ideas of linear independence and, uh, and span and the rank of a matrix and and the fact that the column space has the same dimension as the row space. Wonderful, amazing fact. Uh, if those, those have to, you have to keep moving if you want to reach singular values. It is funny that you bring up singular values. I do remember early in my own linear algebra education, that was something where I got to some later courses and they were like, you've done this, right? And I think that we hadn't quite had time in the oh, early linear algebra that's courses. Right. That was totally normal. It's uh, and I've taught for years just doing singular values in the final few days, and they wouldn't show up on the final exam, so they were uh, just words for too much. But now uh, that's unacceptable. You really have to explain singular values, and and luckily they connect to the eigenvalues of A transpose A. So if I multiply A transpose times A, I get a, a symmetric matrix. And the eigenvectors of that are the singular vectors, or, or, or singular vectors of A. And then, but A transpose A is different from A, A transpose. So we have two sets of singular vectors, just what we wanted. Yeah, just what we wanted. Yeah. And this does come up in so many basic places. When I was getting into ML, I saw these things like low rank approximations, which of right. course apply singular value decomposition. Even yep. when you're, you're doing your very basic linear regression, you have the simple AX equals B equation that everybody right. kind of sees for the first time. And sure. you're, you're not guaranteed that A is an inverse, but then you kind of break it down with singular value decomposition and get yourself to the pseudo inverse, which I'm, right. I'm sure a lot of people who've kind of taken those intro ML classes are kind of familiar with. Yeah, well, more and more, but it's uh, it's the the teaching of linear algebra has to be moved forward to to include singular values and pseudo inverses. I would say I that's now in the sixth edition of Introduction to Linear Algebra, or the main the textbook I teach from. Um, but pseudo inverses is still marginal in the in the in the basic linear algebra course, and probably not actually. Yeah, if if you get the idea of orthogonality and subspaces and and eigenvalues and singular values, you've done pretty well in that in that basic course. Before we move on to um more tightly integrating what we've spoken about and some of these ideas with deep learning. I, I do just want to ask, since you have spent so much of your time on linear algebra, you taught 
more theoretically bent courses early on. I know that you do famously have a, a favorite matrix. I'm curious if there's any if there's any topic in linear algebra that just you find really intellectually kind of beautiful for some reason that might be just totally disconnected from its application. I see. Oh well, there, it, it, linear algebra is just a lovely subject. It's got uh, you know. In, well, let me hammer on calculus for a moment. You know, in calculus, you're just either taking the derivative or, or, or you're integrating, and integrating is a very interesting tr thing. But the by comparison, the variety of ideas in, in linear algebra is just uh, uh, exceptional. Uh, you, you just have matrices of different sorts. So, of course, for symmetric matrices, I think of those as the king of linear algebra, kings, uh, and then maybe orthogonal matrices as the queens, and then, but a whole lot of others. For example, banded matrices, to understand matrices that have, or low rank matrices, you mentioned. Uh, the, the, these different categories of matrices, they all have their own applications, their own importance, their own theory, uh, and uh, connecting them together is just great mathematics. Uh, that's really what mathematics is, is, is seeing the connections between idea, different ideas, ideas that look different, but, but are nevertheless somehow connected. Uh, so, and orthogonality is important for for, for accurate computations, but bandedness or sparseness is, is important for fast computations. So it's a battle between the two, uh, a battle between keeping, so orthogonal vectors are as independent as you can get and, and, uh, and sparse, sparse vectors are as efficient and meaningful as you can get. And, uh, there was always a compromise, and and uh, deep learning has found a, a fantastic new direction for compromise for 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 achieving both. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I uh, for me the conclusion for calculus is I I think that calculus needs a a, a greater development of piecewise polynomial functions or piecewise linear functions. Yeah, the, the space of piecewise linear functions. That's a interesting uh, link between calculus and, and algebra. Let's start to um, work our way towards deep learning in a little bit more detail. And so one thing we were talking about a little bit earlier before we started recording was some of the different pedagogical approaches to thinking about understanding deep learning. You have the kind of top-down, let's begin with the code kind of approach of Jeremy Howard and Fast.ai. You create a deep, you know, a deep network and seven lines of code, you get it to work, and then you kind of start popping off the layers. And you also have the bottom-up approach. Let's actually dig down into the basics. Let's understand linear algebra from the very basic ideas and kind of work forward and build up the tools. And I suppose there's always kind of this, this blend. You want room for both. Of course, Jeremy Howard doesn't completely ignore linear algebra. He sort of progressively brings it in. And I think from the other approach as well, there are ways to kind of bring in concepts from later. But I'm curious how, how you think specifically about for students who are trying to approach the ideas in deep learning. And before we get into some of these questions of why does it work, just getting a grip on what is actually happening in the first place, how do you think about effectively communicating those ideas? Well, uh, let me say that I would like to do more and better with communicating those ideas. Uh, to to what extent can can this tremendous uh, success of deep learning be reflected in high schools in or in early math courses 
certainly the idea of piecewise functions is is uh, crucial here. Uh, that has to be a big part of the of the magic of, of magical success of deep learning, and the fact of composition that 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 you start with the idea of a neural network that has layers, and you create you, the functions that you create uh, are f of x is f1 of a, f1 of f2 of f3 of f4 of fl of x your the, the famous functions that we use the chain rule to find the derivative so the chain rule is the, like the fundamental calculus idea for uh, deep learning if, if i'm allowed to step outside what i know and and uh, just uh, talk about deep learning yeah so so for me deep learning is hinges on the success of the of the the, the fast route to complexity the fact fast route to generalization is is f1 of f2 of f3 of f4 that that those functions get complicated very quickly and powerful very quickly and uh uh, uh and then the and then the effect of the nonlinearity, the effect of ReLU uh, producing uh, piecewise functions. Yeah, so it's a combination of for me the two key math ingredients are the composition of of multiple layers, of a new a new function at each layer, and the uh, ReLU, the nonlinearity that uh, turns turns linear into piecewise linear and uh, that's you know so that's sort of a you could say a high level view of of uh, the mathematics of deep learning i really do want to ask from your perspective thinking about neural networks as you know in the way you do uh, i think that there are a lot of ways people kind of articulate this we call neural networks universal function approximators or kind of flexible templates for creating functions. And there's this within the field, as I'm sure you've probably seen, there are these lingering questions, they have been for a while, about why neural networks seem to generalize so well. It's very non-intuitive. We had these, these theoretical tools about VC yeah. dimension, or Rademacher complexity that we were kind of able to take the hammer to some of the old methods, but then you apply them to deep learning and you get these kind of degenerate statements that really don't mean anything. And so there, there's this ongoing struggle about, well, these things should really just be memorizing, but it seems like even when I train deep neural networks, one kind of important result recently was you take a deep neural network and if you actually train it to a point where it overfits, right? Where the the test loss is much higher than the train loss. And if you actually keep training it, then it kind of starts to generalize instead of just memorizing. Right, that double descent curve where at the beginning you get, the error goes down when you, obviously when you use more functions, but then if you try too many, they, goes up again and then and then it goes down again when you have more yeah so gen generalization yeah that's been the 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 key theoretical question is to explain that success and uh, I think if I'm, I'm not probably not the person who's really up to date uh, fully up to date on on the on the theory of general of generalization but i'm certainly recognizing that that's a fundamental question and uh and that it's gradually being answered along with that another sort of question i have for you from from your perspective is along with the way in which we think about neural networks um one sort of articulation you hear among people who want to make points about the powers and limits of these algorithms is 
sort of articulating them in their mathematical form. So Francois Cholet often talks about deep neural networks as, as manifold manipulators, which I think is one kind of geometric way to put it. And he does not deny that this is an incredibly powerful thing to be able to do in very high dimensions when you have lots of data. But the point he really wants to make with that, of course, is that there's some kind of limit here because a lot of people who were sort of thinking about this deep learning connection as paradigm early on wanted to figure out, well, maybe human cognition kind of looks like this. And so I, I suppose I am curious for you as somebody looking at this through a more mathematical lens, how you think about the powers, the fundamental maybe limitations of neural network-based methods? Well, that's a good question and probably not one to which I have a good answer. Um, yeah, uh, it's, uh, well, you've already interviewed people like Yosho Benjio and, and, uh, and others who uh, have a deep understanding of, of the, 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 uh, the, the ideas, how they fit together into such a successful uh, thing. It's, it's interesting to ask, for me to ask the question, did it have to happen that deep network, deep, deep learning evolved as it did? Was that the only, or have we now got a construction of, uh, of approximating functions? Uh, that to fit the data, but still be stable if the data moves a little? Uh, uh, or could we have done it in an, in an entirely different way? Are there the, the, the big picture? Of course, I agree. It's, it's quite sensible to be uh, happy with the success that we have using ReLU and, and uh, codes that that are established, uh, but to understand why it is that they work and were, are there other possibilities that, that could achieve that uh, uh, is just a natural question to ask, I guess, um, and uh, not a question I uh, would know, know a, uh, an important answer. As uh, as I was trying to say, I I'm maybe especially interested in the question of how to teach deep learning in high school, for example, or, or because everybody reads in the paper now about uh, ChatGP, of course, and all other ideas that are tremendously successful. But can we explain why or? even give a sense of why they work to uh, in high schools and 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 also give give the students a chance to see them see them work see them succeed yeah uh, so I if if any of your listeners have uh, successfully embarked on teaching explaining these ideas to a to a early at early education level i'd be interested to know it's funny you mentioned that i actually did participate in for a little while just kind of part-time because i thought it might be fun this group that was working on establishing a curriculum to teach high school students about the basics oh, of deep learning tell me about that group yeah yeah maybe, um maybe sure yeah i guess I'm, I'm giving them a little bit of a plug here they're called inspirit ai and okay. um, they were started by a bunch of students. I think a lot of them were at Stanford kind of initially. The, the way we sort of taught these, um, these basics, I think, was, well, the students were, I think the students we were teaching were often pretty advanced in mathematics. And so it was kind of scaled, you know, based off of how much coding experience the students might have had. But I think that a lot of the kind of basic intuitions we tried to convey to them. Like one of the first things we went into was how a, a convolutional neural network worked. And I think you can really kind of show a good intuition of like what is going on in a convolutional layer. And I think that the key 
that kind of worked for us and for the students was these ideas are like very visually intuitive. And so Mm -hmm. we were kind of able to display that notion of like, here's, you know, a a feature detector that you can learn. Here's what like a Sobel kernel kind of looks like. And when you apply that. So we made use of, I think, a combination of maybe a bit of a more like, let's, you know, get down and multiply a couple of matrices here in a very small example kind of setting. And combining that with a lot of visualization. And I found, I think for for our case, that tended to be a pretty powerful way of, of conveying these ideas. And at least in, maybe I was just very lucky, but at least in my experience, the students kind of seemed to get what was going on. Oh, well, that sounds like a success that I'd like to see. And, uh, and I hope you'll, when our interview is over, send me a message about where I should look and learn. Uh, Yes, yes, absolutely. I'd love to dig in a little bit into, so as you've mentioned, and and many know, you spent 66 years teaching at MIT. And so this is really a period of time that saw, I think, a lot of change, as we mentioned, in the importance of and the attention paid to linear algebra by people who were not you. And I, I suppose I'm curious to hear a little bit about I, I can imagine that there has probably been a lot of consistency in your pedagogical approach, but I guess I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about what changed, what stayed the same about how you approached teaching linear algebra over time. Okay, thank you. Um, well, I guess my teaching evolved and continues to evolve. You know, the sixth edition of Introduction to Linear Algebra, which is now my textbook, um, is has a different start from the fifth edition, uh, and and it includes now uh, deep learning and optimization chapters at the end of the book. So, so uh, the result the result is a different start and a different finish for for a, for a basic linear algebra textbook. Um, yeah. Um, so, um, and, and of course, recognizing the limitations of, of one semester, it's, uh, you, you can't do everything. But, uh, uh, well, I'll, let me just go back to one uh, algebra idea, which turned out well. Um, and it came from the very, it was there from the very first uh, linear algebra book uh, that I worked on and, and the linear algebra course was the idea of four fundamental subspaces. Uh, I don't know if you know those by name, but so the, yeah, the, the, the row space, the combinations of the rows, the column space, the combinations of the columns, the null space, the solutions to AX equals zero. And the fourth one is the solutions to A transpose X equals zero. The, 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 the roles of A and A transpose are fundamental to linear algebra, fundamental that, that you have the same numbers are appearing in the rows of the matrix as in the columns, but they're different vectors, they're, they're different lengths. Everything looks different, but of course, the fact that the same numbers are going into them uh, means that they are closely related. Yeah, so that's that's teaching the linear algebra part. Yeah, I, I don't feel that I uh, and have a a great picture of how to teach deep learning. Uh, well, partly because I think we still have some things to understand about generalization and, and deep learning. But I'm, I'm interested to learn more about your uh, um, uh, InSpirit AI uh, that, uh, because if, if it succeeded for you, it's, uh, it's, that, that's a very good sign. Yeah, I, I would have to flag, I think that we probably, what we got across for the students was a lot of 
the the intuitions with you know a little bit of the mathematics there which is i think what you'd expect and hope for at a high school level yeah yeah i I think it sounds you you were on the right track was there a stanford faculty who took a part in that or who 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 kind of led led the effort oh sure yeah so it was mostly an initiative that was led by students and i think right Uh now it's more positioned as a business um, the way that they're kind of running it. But yeah, so I think I, I no longer have access to the curriculum materials, but okay. at the very least, I did like what they were doing. And I think that yeah, like it actually good. did um, a pretty decent job at communicating the ideas. That's a good recommendation. Okay. And and it would be accessible to good high school students or good college students. I would think so. Yeah, to good high school students absolutely is the goal. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, maybe we can talk more. So for me, the and, and of course, as we know, deep learning, different kinds of networks, different applications are continuing to come uh, forward. And uh, uh, the whole subject is just... Uh, uh, inspiring to to see all that happen. I think so too. I think this would be a good place for maybe a a closing question. And I I suppose the most appropriate one would be, as we've mentioned, you you recently gave your final lecture at MIT and I and and many others watched it. And I, I just love to hear you maybe reflect a little bit on the 66 years you've been teaching and kind of now that, of course, I, I imagine you kind of want to stay as engaged as you can, even if you're not officially teaching from the sound of it. I, I suppose I'm just curious about how how these these decades of your life spent as an educator, spent really championing linear algebra and mathematics education, how that's kind of affected you personally. I see. Okay. Let, let me put in just one thought. Uh, now that those all those years are over, I'm retired. I won't be teaching a class at MIT, but uh, my thoughts are still working. And uh, um, so, one a natural question for me is whether high school algebra uh, needs some new thinking. And I have to confess that I don't know anything about how high school algebra is taught. I have everything to learn and I'm hoping to ask friends and learn more. And maybe your, uh, maybe this uh, recording will bring some, some uh, thoughts from, from the audience, from listeners about, and, and they'd be very welcome. Just gillstrang at gmail.com. Uh, but I hope to learn more about, uh, about that direction. Um, yeah, so, um, but your, your question was more about the 60, well, three years of learning and 63 years of teaching. It was, it was, uh, 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 66 total. And, uh, of course, wonderful years. Uh, te- teachers are very lucky people. Um, uh, yeah, so I, uh. Uh, I feel that the, that the linear algebra has, and not uh, just because it's so important, uh, that that had to uh, that growth and, and development had to evolve, and it did, and it's just uh, a pleasure to look back at to, to see to see it all uh, ha- happen, and. Uh, uh, and thanks to deep learning, there are more questions that kind of link calculus with linear algebra. Uh, again, piecewise linear is, is a link a class of functions that connect those two uh, great subjects. So uh, there's more to come. That's maybe my uh, thought at, at age 88. Uh, there's more to come. Well, I and I, I hope everybody listening to this are, are very excited to see what is what is yet to come. 
Professor Shrang, I, I do want to thank you for being so generous with your time and for speaking with me today. It was really an honor. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.